Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to another exciting episode of Cryptique. I'm joined, as always, by a man who knows it ain't easy being green. Ryan, what's it up? certainly isn't. And this is not... I didn't even realize I'm wearing a green-ish shirt. Green-ish. I just grabbed this. We didn't mean to match. <laughs> well, I'm glad we both remembered <laughs> shirts, at least. <laughs> I hope that's something you would remind me of, like a... Uh, you forgot a shirt. <laughs> yeah, otherwise it'd be like, it's not easy being blinding white. <laughs> right. All right. Well, how are you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. I've had uh, some kind of weird flu for the last week, but it's fine. It's just one of those ones that's like affecting me mentally. Oh, there you go. Physically. It's, uh, it's a good excuse to not have to be cooped up in a car with in-laws, that's for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, we, Crypt Keepers, you need to know that we are still working out the kinks on our video show. Uh, So if this is a little weird tonight, don't be alarmed. We'll get it all figured out and everything will be just fine. Right. Growing pains. That's right. You want to tell them what they need to know? As always share us with somebody interact with the show on whatever platform you're using hopefully it'll be youtube eventually and tell us what you want to hear tell us what you think at crypticpodcast at gmail.com and if you want to check out our socials or help us keep the servers on you can find the information for buy me a coffee or anything else in the show notes absolutely and look at how tired we are man we could sure use a coffee <laughs> All right, what are we talking about tonight? Uh, we are talking about the Green Children of Wolpit, and I do have my coffee. Oh, I knew and you my were Batman, Batman mug, which I think I actually got from. We were talking about Six Flags before the show. I think yeah. I got that at Six Flags, nice. and it's got a Japan thing stamped in the bottom of it. So this thing must be pretty old. Yeah, it is kind of cool. I'm surprised it's in such good shape. I love the uh, Japanese versions of comic book characters. You know what I like mean? Like Spider-Man or whatever? Well, just like uh, when Wolverine went to Japan or whatever. That whole oh, okay. series. Like the artwork was just, to me, it was amazing. And, and I like that okay. they do that. So. I thought you meant like maybe some of the campy versions. Like they did a Spider-Man-like character that was kind of his own thing. but yeah i know what you mean like they did uh they've done like some elseworlds type stuff Mm -hmm. where it's like batman and joker in like feudal japan and stuff like that yeah it's pretty good stuff all right let's get into the green children of Vulpit. you want to tell us about them yes the tale of the green children of Vulpit revolves around a pair of uniquely colored children who supposedly appeared in the village of Vulpit in suffolk Vulpit. That probably is how you would say it, actually. Probably. With an English accent. The tale of the green children of Woolpit revolves around a pair of uniquely colored children who supposedly appeared in the village of Woolpit in Suffolk, England, during the 12th century, possibly while King Stephen was in power. These children, confirmed to be siblings, displayed mostly ordinary features, except for their skin's distinctly green hue. They communicated in an unfamiliar language and exclusively consumed raw fava beans. (laughs) Yum. 
Over time, they acquired a taste for different foods and shed their green pigmentation. However, the boy fell ill and passed away shortly after his sister received baptism. The girl acclimated to her new surroundings, although she gained a reputation for being very wanton and impudent. So, <laughs> a reputation for being a young girl, I guess. <laughs> Pretty much. After mastering English, the girl revealed that she and her brother hailed from a land where the sun never cast its rays fully, and daylight resembled twilight. Sounds like a place I'd like to go. From beyond so the ice wall. <laughs> I'm so pale, sun burns my skin like acid. In one version of the account, she described everything there as green, while another version claims she referred to it as St. Martin's Land. And it, I guess, is worth noting that if you eat... I mean, you can physically sort of start to change color from eating something that has a lot of that pigmentation in it. Yeah. Or at least I've read stuff about that in the past. That could be like pseudoscience that made it through publishing and never got caught. But <laughs> I swear I've read stories of kids turning orange from eating nothing but like carrots and oranges and things like that before. That's why I uh, eat vegetables. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's why some people want their steaks extra like well done. They want to tan, yeah. but they don't have the time to go out in the sun. <laughs> That's right. Anyway. The earliest accounts of the green children can be found in William of Newburgh's Historia, Rerum, Anglicarum, and Ralph of Coggeshall's Chronicum Anglicanum, penned around 1189 and 1220, respectively. They do not make titles like that anymore. Mm -mm. From that point until their reemergence in the mid-19th century, references to these peculiar children are scarce. They briefly appear in William Camden's Britannia in 1586 and are mentioned in two works from the early 17th century. Robert Burton's The Anatomy of Melancholy and Bishop Francis Godwin's fantastical tale, The Man in the Moon. I like that. The Anatomy of Melancholy. That's a great title. That's mm -hmm. a great album title. Yeah, yeah. Two main interpretations have shaped discussions about the Green Children's story. One suggests that it's a folk narrative describing an imaginative encounter with denizens from another realm, possibly underground or extraterrestrial. The alternative perspective proposes that it represents an actual occurrence represented in a convoluted manner. Herbert Red, an English anarchist poet and critic, which is... Man, if you're ever going to have something on your tombstone... <laughs> lauded the narrative as an exemplary fantasy in his 1928 work, English Prose Style. This story also served as the muse for his sole novel, The Green Child, which saw publication in 1935. Woolpit is situated in Suffolk County of East Anglia, which is a super old-school way of locating that, approximately seven miles to the east of Bury St. Edmunds. Throughout the Middle Ages, it was under the jurisdiction of St. Edmund's Abbey, existing as a part of one of the most densely populated regions in rural England. <laughs> Two chroniclers, yeah, those are kind of contradicting terms. <laughs> Two chroniclers, Ralph of Coggeshall and William of Newburgh, as we talked about before, documented the sudden and puzzling arrival of these children in the 12th century. Ralph held the position of abbot at Coggeshall Abbey, a Cistercian institution located roughly 26 miles south of Woolpit. Meanwhile, William served as a canon at the Augustinian Newburgh Priory, situated far to the north in Yorkshire. William, in his work Historia 
Rerum Anglicarum asserts that his account is founded upon reports from a number of reliable sources. Ralph, composing his Chronicum Anglicanum during the 1220s, drew inspiration from the narrative of Sir Richard de Conn of Wykes, who purportedly provided refuge to the children in his manor house, situated six miles north of Woolpit. What a guy. So both people reporting that they don't have direct contact with the kids, but know somebody who's reliable who's telling them about them. Yeah. So it's all secondhand. Wouldn't be allowed in court. Yeah. <laughs> During medieval times, it was customary for chroniclers to replicate passages from others' works, often without proper credit. However, the accounts presented by these two diverge in certain aspects. Mikkel Madaj, a scholar from Jagiellonian University, because I'm not totally sure to pronounce that. J-A-G are the first three letters, so you guys make up your mind and tell us if we were wrong at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. Or leave it in the uh, comments. Or leave it in the comments. But this guy holds the belief that neither William nor Ralph... Actually, we don't know if it's a guy. This scholar holds the belief that neither William nor Ralph had access to each other's manuscripts when narrating the tale of the Green Children. The scholar also argues that although Ralph was approximately 25 miles away from Woolpit, William's account was derived from a standpoint situated on the opposite side of England. This renders it even less probable for Ralph to have copied from William. Additionally, Ralph explicitly mentions his sources while William attributes the tale to unnamed persons. John Clark has put forward the notion that Richard de Conn might have been the common source for both writers. He proposes that although William was more geographically distant, he likely had connections with the Augustinian Thetford Abbey. Despite being close from proximity, Ralph's writing occurred several decades after William's. Although William penned his account relatively soon after the events unfolded, Campbell has indicated that his narrative is enveloped in uncertainty. That's not a great thing to say, is it? Yeah, my, my true story is enveloped in uncertainty. Uncertainty. <laughs> William's phrasing, which is Latin, and I'm not even no, I'm not even going to do it, can be interpreted as "summa brutus ut coger creder." Wow, I don't know if that's Latin sounding or not. Bravo, can be interpreted as conveying a sense of compulsion to believe, though it literally translates to "I am sufficiently crushed that I am forced to believe," which is a good statement because he's saying like this is not what I the conclusion I wanted to come to. I totally wanted to prove this wrong. But through my research, it's proving to be pretty believable. Yeah, which is, yeah, you're right. That is good. That's a respectable conclusion to arrive at since most people, I think I've said it on here before, but there's that phrase that I read when I was studying statistics in grad school that most people use statistics the way a drunk uses a lamppost mm -hmm. for support rather than illumination. Most people are looking to verify something they already believe in. And we've seen that in academia oh, in yeah. the last couple of years. So many reports that are like, especially in economics, so many reports that are just widely accepted that we're finding out the data is totally bogus or oh. there was something wrong with their research methodology or the model that they used. And they altered things because they have a conclusion that they want to arrive at. Yep. It's whoever's paying for the research. They get the result they want, even if they have to hide it in like obscure statistics that make it look like they're being backed up, but they 
aren't necessarily like my favorite one is anybody who's done crack has tried Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola is a gateway to crack. Obviously the facts are probably pretty close to true, but they really have nothing to do with each other. So, yeah, there's a lot of this. This is maybe not the best comparison, but it's something I was talking to Kim about. I was watching this video where they were, uh, these comedians were talking about conservative comedians and how conservative comedy for the most part, isn't very funny anymore. Well, well, when you say conservative, you mean like not working in blue, not cussing, not talking about sex and farts and stuff like that. No, no. I mean like conservative, like promoting conservative values and stuff like that. Well, it's true. Um, Not funny. Yeah. A lot of it is true. (laughs) And they were saying like the blue collar comedy tour, like those guys were very conservative and they were kind of poking fun at themselves years ago and they were extremely popular. Yeah. It was this huge deal for a long time. And they were showing, I think, Dave Chappelle talking about trans people. Mm-hmm. And then they launch into this whole thing. It's like, well, you see, he's mis, uh, misconstruing gender and sex. Whereas gender is a made-up thing, and sex is this. And at this one point, these cells develop that could either become testes or ovaries. And I didn't, like, the next day, for some reason, that just came back into my mind. And it's like, if that's the thing that makes the two so interchangeable... Couldn't you say that about anything, pretty much? Like, well, the beam in this building and your car are both steel. Yeah. And when the steel is being smelted, it could become a fork, a (laughs) beam for a house, like a panel for a ship, a wing for an airplane. (laughs) Right. I don't know. It just seems like maybe not the most scientific thing to just... I mean, I get what they're saying. They're saying, like, literally in the vet development, it's just how whichever gene triggers that causes this change. Sure. But it's the same sort of thing. Like, you can trace back causality to a point where it's, like, almost ridiculous. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, everybody who's ever done that, like, breathing is the worst thing in the world because 100% of people who breathe die at some right. point in their life. Right. <laughs> yes, it's a precursor to death. Are, I'm surprised we haven't seen people that are like, are you still breathing oxygen? Every breath you take is another breath that takes you towards death. Hold mm-hmm. your breath for as long as you can all the time and you'll live longer. Or yeah. your your heart has only a certain number of beats in it. So when you exercise, you're just taking your ticker one step closer to demise. Yeah, or like, you know, men... Men are the problem because men contribute, what, 80% of crime, 90% of crime, something like yeah. that. It's like, but you could be even more complete in capturing that statistic by saying, like, carbon-based life <laughs> contributes 100% of crime. Anyway. All right, let's get back to the story. <laughs> During the harvest season, on a day within the rule of King Stephen, not Stephen King, as recounted by William of Newburgh, the residents of Woolpit came upon two children, a brother and a sister, near one of the wolf pits that bestowed its name upon the village. So the village eventually became Woolpit, but it started off as wolf pits because they dug pits to capture wolves. So, yeah. It's uh, it's it's weird, but I understand why you wouldn't want your name to be associated with 
you know, your village name, like, Hey, there's wolves all over here. Nobody should come here. So I get it. But their skin exhibited a green hue. Their speech was in an unfamiliar tongue, and their attire was unlike anything known. Ryan's boy, Ralph of Cogshaw, reports that these children were brought to the abode of Richard de Calm. Both Ralph and William, William confirm that the pair abstained from consuming any substance for a few days until they encountered some raw, what is this, fava beans? from the fava plant, from the fava region of Favaria, which they eagerly, eagerly devoured. Gradually, they transitioned to regular food, and over time, their green pigment faded away. It was determined that the children should be baptized, but sadly, the boy who appeared the younger of the two fell ill and passed away either before or shortly after the ceremony. So, I mean, depending on where you stand on religion and baptism if you're wanting these two to get baptized then hopefully it was just after the ceremony once they acquired proficiency in english something i'm still working on the children ralph asserts it was just the surviving girl disclosed that they hailed from a land where sunlight never fully shone and the illumination resembled twilight so if we're thinking of this you would think, obviously, either extremely far north or extremely far south. And being that this is in the UK, you would think, you know, from, I, I don't know where, I mean, I guess in Scotland, probably in northern Scotland, there's some areas where, you know, it doesn't get a whole lot of uh, sunlight in the winter. So, but somewhere, you know, in the in the uh, Norwegian section or like Northern Russia and Northern Mongolia in that area uh, would make sense as, as they don't have the, you know, like we see in Alaska where it's like basically light for 24 hours and then it's basically dark for 24 hours. According to William, the girl referred to their homeland as St. Martin's land. Ralph added that everything there was cloaked in green. Now, Ireland is pretty much cloaked in green all the time, but maybe the vegetation in the area, you know, and we're just assuming that this is all true for the purpose of this discussion. Maybe it needed to be everything just was completely filled with chlorophyll because they had to, you know, ingest as much as possible all the time. So that would kind of make sense. Yeah. Yeah. When I was looking up what might, actually cause this i mean i know i mentioned it earlier with like foods and things like that but specifically one of the points that i found called out um mm. vegetables that are particularly rich in chlorophyll can cause a green hue on your skin just look so, at the jolly yeah, green giant <laughs> yeah he started off as white and transitioned into green yeah, became a vegan and turned green in any case per williams account the children were unable to account for their arrival in woolpit they'd been tending to their father's cattle when a loud noise like the bells of bury st edmund's abbey resonated as described by william and abruptly they found themselves near the wolf pit where they were discovered Ralph's version conveyed that they became disoriented while following the cattle into a cavern. Guided by the sound of bells, they eventually emerged into our realm. 
According to Ralph, the girl spent numerous years serving in the household of Richard DeCon, where she was perceived as impulsive and kind of rebellious. I prefer sassy. Let's describe her as sassy. So the girl was sassy. William narrates that she eventually wedded a man from King's Lynn, about 40 miles from Woolpit. This was still her abode shortly before he documented the tale. Um, I do like that, you know, Richard DeCallan like discovered these people and he's like, you know what? I need a green person to serve me dinner at my house. And I need, you know, I need this. I need so I'm going to keep the green girl. Right. Yeah, I need a sassy green girl. Is going to be like, here's your stew. Yeah. And then <laughs> <laughs> here's your broccoli. <sighs> She's like, this is going to be big in about 800 years. <laughs> Drawing upon his exploration of Richard DeCon's familial history, astronomer and writer Duncan Lunan concluded that the girl was named Agnes and tied the knot with a royal official named Richard Barr. All right. We'll cover explanations. After a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Tell us about the explanations. Both Ralphie Ralph and William refrain from providing a solution for the peculiar and extraordinary occurrence which William characterizes. This reticence is mirrored by certain modern historians as well. Nancy Partner, who authored a study on 12th century historiography, voices her opinion. We're always learning new words here. <laughs> I know, it's so strange. Uh, I believe, although we, you didn't work, well, whatever. We haven't worked enigmatic into this very Not much. Not yet. We need to work on that. We're, we're, we're going to eventually release some kind of drinking game set for enigmatic <laughs> mentions <laughs> as that should come to the store cryptic tarot cards and drinking game yeah all right she says i believe that the process of analyzing the suggestive details of these marvelously purposeless miracles to uncover natural or psychological interpretations of what actually if anything transpired is futile in studying william of newburgh or the middle ages that is one of the most shit dropping impenetrable sentences i've ever read <laughs> but <clears throat> essentially yeah she's saying that there's no she's saying there's no real point in studying this yeah because it's kind of a it's a weird purposeless thing that happened i mean it she says miracle so i'm guessing miracle she just means a thing that has happened that cannot happen as in having great people yeah, I, I mean, what I love is purposeless miracle. Mm, okay, is that two words that you would expect to see next to each other? Right, yeah. It, I mean, if you're saying yeah. something's a miracle, then it has a purpose. It can't be a miracle without a purpose. Well, no, it can be a miracle without a purpose. It just has to be a thing that's not supposed to be able to be done. Like having a candle stay lit underwater or something like that. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know. I associate miracles with healing and true transformation, yeah. and you know things like that. Not uh, when I think of miracle, I relate it directly to Christianity. I think of you know resurrecting someone from the dead or walking mm -hmm. on water to prove like I am the Messiah. That sort of thing. 
But I mean, I guess miracle's been kind of devolved into a word that just describes something extraordinary now. So maybe, and that it depends on how she's using it. True. Uh, nevertheless, despite this viewpoint, attempts to decipher the enigma persist. Boom. <laughs> the two prominent interpretations Drink. of the mystery surrounding the green children. The initial perspective proposes that the narrative is rooted in folklore, representing an imaginative interaction with denizens from a fairy otherworld. Now, before we go any further, fairies may not be a big deal to you if you're listening in Brazil or Australia or the United States. But in the UK, fairies go back a long, long way, and they're not like these little tinkerbell things that you know float around and grant you wishes they're being seen as malevolent creatures that are trying to harm people so this is kind of a big deal in the uk and also fairy other worlds is a decent band name <laughs> uh and certain earlier and contemporary interpretations this alternative realm is considered extraterrestrial casting the green children as beings from another planet the second viewpoint asserts that the account is a muddled depiction of a genuine event. However, it remains uncertain whether the recorded story is an authentic retelling by the children themselves or an adult invention. Charles Oman's examination of the tale led him to deduce that there is undeniably some enigma, and we didn't even work that in, that's his own quote, mm -hmm. lurking behind it all, a narrative perhaps involving drugging and abduction. Mm. Medievalist Jeffrey Jerome Cohen offers an alternative or another alternative historical explanation contending that the narrative indirectly addresses the racial distinctions between English and Native Britons. Yeah. Which we don't think about because that's, you know, like a thousand years ago. Yeah. Well, but all I know is we've got folklore next. Yep. You want to get into folklore? 20th century scholars, including Charles Oman, who specialized in folklore, observed a recurring motif in the children's account, the passage into an alternate reality through a cave. Gerald of Wales, a medieval historian, recounts a similar tale of a schoolboy truant who encountered two small beings guiding him through an underground passage to a captivating land illuminated by fields and rivers, but not bathed in full sunlight. However, the specific element involving the green children is scarcely documented. E.W. Bauman categorizes it as the sole instance of his motif in English and North American folk tales denoted as, quote, inhabitants of lower world visit mortals and continue to live with them, which is interesting because there's a lot of people that believe that there is a Middle Earth or a Lower Earth. Some believe it has its own sun. We've heard tales of the ultra-terrestrials and the sea tones in China, where these men who were trapped in a mine, they went yeah. down further because they couldn't get out through the mine, and they encountered their own you know, humanoid creatures there and they yeah. ate food that made them heal so it's not just a green children thing you sound like you have something you want to add no no i just remember hearing those stories too 
about those miners in particular. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a very common belief. I, I've always found it more likely that they're being transported somewhere else as opposed to being inside, like physically inside the earth. Hmm. So like a different realm, like different dimension. Better. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, the person we referred to earlier, Medij or Medej, also contends... The scholar formerly known as Medej. <laughs> well, this person also contends that the Green Children's narrative is part of a widespread imaginative theme originating in England and Wales centered around traversing a cave into another realm. Martin Walsh interprets the tale of the Green Children as a, quote, confused account of an ancient harvest ritual. End quote. He places significance on the mentions of St. Martin and views the story as a glimpse into the origins of the Martinmas feast, suggesting that it might have roots in an ancient English tradition of which the children's account represents the, quote, earliest layer. However, your boy John Clark questions Walsh's conclusions, asserting that there is no evidence of St. Martin having other world connections or linking the children to an ancient harvest ritual. Medij aligns the hypothetical St. Martin's land with the saint himself, echoing Anne Witt's earlier argument connecting St. Martin with the underworld. In medieval folklore, St. Martin was closely associated with the symbols of death, such as riding a horse, a common symbol of guiding souls, and holding a staff representing resurrection. And, you know, sometimes I think that these interpretations of, you know, paintings and sculptures and stuff like that, I don't know how much I, how much faith I put in, you know, like, oh, he was holding a staff, that must mean resurrection. And he was riding a horse, which means he was guiding people to death and resurrection. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, did they say that? Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same way. Might be reading a little bit much into it. Yeah. Medij suggests that the two children might simultaneously represent life and death, akin to the near contemporaneous stories of the Green Knight. The change in their pigmentation could symbolize the transition from death to life, a revival occurring upon the surface. The consumption of beans has also intrigued folklorists. K.M. Briggs notes, quote, It is worth noting that the children's staple food was beans, which is associated with the diet of the deceased. End quote. You know, what dead people eat. I mean, yeah, you know, beans. I had to turn over some records for my accountant and lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause my taxes are kind of complicated and all that. I bet. And they had to look at Venmo, uh, transaction history <laughs> and Venmo has that feature. I'm sure many of you listening know that you can like, it, it will publicly display what you're Purchasing. sending transactions yeah. for. Yeah. <clears throat> so I have a transaction where one of my friends, a female is sending me money. And she puts for feet pics. And then I have transactions where I'm sending one of my cousins money. And it's, yeah, there's just a bunch of them where I'm like, it's always for dinner or something. Right. It's like, we've all gone to some restaurant. I'm sending you 20 bucks for mine. And it's like dog kidneys, Neanderthal (laughs) DNA. And then the latest ones just said beans, but it was all capitals. It was like B, like three E's, four A's, two N's, and a bunch of S's. (laughs) For some reason, that's making me think of this. Mm. 
Magic beans, just right? Just came my beans, yeah. Somewhere, somewhere there's an accountant going, beans. <laughs> what does he mean? What is this code for? How can you write beans off on your taxes, Ryan? <laughs> I don't know. I don't see that as a great uh, commercial, you know, like beans, the diet of dead people. I don't know. That's just kind of yeah. weird. Like, what do dead people eat? Uh, I could see worms, maybe, but... Blood, yeah. if they're a vampire. Yeah. Brains, if they're in a Romero movie. Yeah, but but beans. Okay. This, <laughs> this observation mirrors her <laughs> earlier mention of beans as a food link to the dead in her 1967 work, The Fairies in English Tradition and Literature. However... John Clark again expresses skepticism regarding the alleged tradition Briggs refers to, asserting that labeling beans as the food of the dead is unfounded. I'm with you, JC. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ride or die. Nonetheless, he concurs that, quote, beans hold associations with the deceased in numerous cultures, end quote. And Medij contends that not only have broad beans served as symbols of death and decay since ancient times, they have also been connected to opposing concepts like rebirth and fertility. Getting into the beans here a little bit. Yeah. A contemporary retelling of the tale draws parallels between the green children and the babes in the wood. While variations exist, a common motif entails these children being abandoned or taken to perish in the woods, often identified as Wayland Wood or Thetford Forest. It's said that their uncle poisoned them with arsenic, leading to their distinct pigmentation. After escaping the woods, they became intertwined with the Woolpit children's narrative, only to meet their fate by falling into pits before being eventually discovered. Now think about this. You're just walking through the woods, and there's some problems with this story, but I want to tell it anyway. You're walking through the woods, and you're unfortunate enough to fall into a pit. Well, that sucks. But what sucks worse is there's three wolves that haven't eaten in two weeks, starving to death in the bottom of the pit. Mm. Ouch. Moving on. This version of the story was familiar to local author and folk singer Bob Roberts, who mentioned in his 1978 book, A Slice of Suffolk, that there are individuals in Woolpit who are believed to be descendants of the green children, though their identities remain undisclosed. Other analysts propose the possibility that the children might have been extraterrestrial beings or inhabitants of an underground world. Yeah, could be. Mm -hmm. In a 1996 article published in the magazine Analog, astronomer Duncan Lunan puts forth the hypothesis that the children accidentally arrived in Woolpit due to a malfunction in a, quote, matter transmitter from their home planet. And this is uh, getting into some Star Trek stuff. You want to tell us about their matter transmitter? I mean, the transporters or beaming devices from Star Trek hypothetically would convert matter to energy, uh, record a like molecular pattern, transmit the data and the energy at the same time, and then reassemble that energy into matter and assemble it in the right order to create a person. And there are a lot, a lot of Star Trek storylines, like episode, you know, sort of not the overarching ones, but like the episode by episode storylines where something goes wrong with it. It's intercepted by something and they end up beaming somewhere they're not supposed to go, or it reassembles them as children, or it reassembles two versions of the same person, each one with like 
the more submissive characteristics or the more aggressive characteristics for the other one. And there's a conflict. So I think that it's a little Star Trek. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess you can have any hypothesis you want, but it's hard to prove that they were the victims of a malfunction of a matter transmitter. Of a beaming device. Yeah. Well, and it also, yeah, it's one of these things where these explanate, I mean, we don't, we're just mentioning it offhand, mm-hmm. but it's one of these things where, uh, Eureka, the show Eureka did a really good job of explaining, um, Occam's razor. God, this, this flu has like scrambled my brain in the last couple of days, but Occam's razor is that the it's most people say the simplest explanation is probably true. Right. And it's more accurate to say that the explanation requiring the least number of assumptions is probably true. Mm -hmm. And an example of this that they give in the show Eureka, which I've always liked is, you know, you wake up in the morning, there's a storm last night, there's a tree down in your backyard. Mm -hmm. One explanation is the storm knocked it down. Another explanation is a flying saucer was coming through the area, got hit by lightning, hit the tree and knocked it down. Oh, we need an episode on that. The second one the second one requires a bunch of assumptions that their UFOs and flying saucers are real. They're in the area. They're affected by lightning, stuff like that. Right. Like this requires that there's a matter transmitter device that they are within some kind of range, that there was something in Suffolk in the 12th century that could have intercepted it. Right. Like all of these assumptions have to be made and be true for that to be the explanation where it just seems more likely that if they're, I mean, who knows where they could have really been from? Yeah. Most likely just some strange environment here and they were eating something weird, but I don't know. Could be more than that. Maybe they were part plant and that was chlorophyll they needed to absorb the sunlight. I mean, that's just as likely Mm -hmm. as a matter transmitter. Probably more likely, actually. But according to Lunin, the planet from which the children originated could be caught in a synchronous orbit around its sun, resulting in conditions suitable for life solely in a twilight zone between an intensely hot surface and a frigid dark side. So there you have it. I mean, it's pretty much answered. Case closed. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. (laughs) He explains that the children's green coloration as a consequence of consuming genetically modified alien plants consumed by the planet's inhabitants. Well, I mean, let's just go as far out as we can, right? Like, you know, I picture him like writing a a short article that goes out and people are like, oh, yeah, I, I like this article. And then he's like, well, but also they did this. And also I know about this planet. And and it's like, come on, this is the reverse of Occam's razor. It's it's trying to assume as much as possible. With the no story foundation. That's the most far out is, well, it's yeah, it's like the story that's the most far out is going to be the one that's most popular. Look at some of the stuff that we've talked about. I mean, we don't believe everything we talk about. I I would say a huge amount of what we talk about is probably BS or probably has a more mundane explanation, but it's so much more fun, mm. especially since we're talking. Well, lately, well, actually, that's not true. We have talked about some kind of more grounded stuff like the Battle of L.A. and things like that. But there are definitely some topics where we get into where it's like super far out and that's what makes it fun. Sure, sure. Like it's just it's like such a leap where it's like and this and this detail on top of it. Because I've definitely gone down rabbit holes where people are doing exactly what you're talking about. They're just like 
I don't know if they're making it up. It's like they have fantastic imaginations, <laughs> but somehow they're just adding detail on top of detail. <laughs> yeah. Um, Duncan, if you're out there, um, leave your contact information in the comments. Actually, you should probably email us at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. Come on and tell us where all this information came from. I mean, if he says, you know, I channeled someone or it was automatic writing or something like that, I'll listen. So, Balunin wasn't the first to suggest extraterrestrial origins for the green children. Now, if you're saying, hey, maybe they're aliens from another planet. Okay. But I don't think that unless you have had contact with them and they've told you about it, that you're going to be able to know all this stuff. In his 1621 work, The Anatomy of Melancholy, Robert Burton proposed that the green children descended from heaven. This notion seems to have been picked up by Francis Godwin, historian and bishop of Hereford, in his speculative fiction, The Man in the Moon, published posthumously in 1638. Godwin's work draws inspiration from William of Newburgh's account. You want to tell us about some historical explanations? Yeah, you've done probably a lot of talking the far out yeah in 1998 paul harris presented a down-to-earth interpretation of the green children within the context of 12th century history i keep my mind is wandering so much like when you said babes in the wood i thought of like suzanne summers in the wood uh and now down to earth i'm thinking like well they said they came down from heaven that's down to earth right (laughs) there you go He proposes that they were the offspring of Flemish immigrants who arrived in eastern England during the early 12th century and faced persecution after Henry II ascended the throne in 1154. Harris identifies their supposed homeland, St. Martin's Land, as Fornham St. Martin, a village just north of Bury St. Edmunds. He suggests that the children's parents were Flemish cloth workers settled in this area. Additionally, in 1173, the Battle of Fornham occurred during the Civil War between King Henry II and his son, the young King Henry. <laughs> that's in quotes. Okay. So that's apparently like not an official name for him. Yeah, but you, <laughs> love, long- you love names like that, right? Like his name, his dad was King Henry II, and we're just going to call him young King Henry. <laughs> Or we're going to call him Lil King yeah. Henry and give him like a big gold clock to wear in the Some battle. face tats and some uh, mumble rap and he's ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's going to collaborate with, uh, oh, what's that guy, Post Malone? There you go. Ryan said, by the way, if we get a thousand likes on this video, he'll get a face tat, so. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll get a temporary one yeah. and then it probably won't come off. Oh, all right, where was I? Rebel forces along with numerous Flemish mercenaries landed in Suffolk and faced defeat by royal troops near the River Lark. The Flemish mercenaries suffered heavy casualties, leading Harris to speculate that there might have been violence against peaceful Flemish settlers in the region. Sure. The children could have fled and eventually ended up in Woolpit, arriving disoriented, unable to communicate in English, and clad in unfamiliar Flemish attire. They would have appeared extremely unusual to the villagers of Woolpit. Harris suggests that their greenish skin can be attributed to hyperchromatic anemia, also known as chlorosis or green sickness, a condition resulting from dietary deficiencies, which is another thing that came up in my research. We we need to 
highlight too that they said they were brother and sister. It would make a difference in mm-hmm. this story if they were unrelated. But you would assume or presume that being brother and sister, they would have almost identical diets. Mm. Yeah. In a subsequent article, John Clark highlighted certain issues with Harris's use of historical evidence and remained unconvinced by the notion that the children were Flemish or that their color was the result of green sickness. Brian Houghton describes Harris's theory as currently the most widely accepted explanation and asserts that it certainly offers plausible answers to many of the mysteries of the Woolpit Enigma. However, he concludes that the notion of displaced Flemish orphans has several shortcomings. For example, Houghton questions the likelihood that an educated individual like Richard de Caen wouldn't have recognized the children's language as Flemish. Mm. Similarly, regarding green sickness, Modish counters that if this condition were prevalent, much of the contemporary population should have displayed similar greenish hues. He suggests that the tone of green observed in the children's skin was likely unprecedented and unusual. Although I would add that if they're recent Flemish immigrants, uh, depending on how they traveled and where they got their food from, it's, I would say, possible that their dietary deficiencies were from traveling, the result of traveling and probably surviving on food that they had, like, packed with them. But do you want to get into another explanation? Let's talk about Derek Brewer's explanation. It's even more prosaic. All right, so historian Derek Brewer has another explanation. The probable essence of the matter lies in the fact that these very young children tending to or trailing behind herds inadvertently strayed from their woodland village possessed limited language skills, and lacked knowledge of their own home location. They were likely afflicted by chlorosis, a deficiency disorder that imparts a greenish hue to the skin, thus the term green sickness, which we mentioned earlier. This condition typically fades with an improved diet. Jeffrey Jerome Cohen advances the notion that the story addresses racial differentiation, allowing William to indirectly address the Welsh. Cohen argues that the green children serve as a recollection of England's history encompassing the conquest of the native Britons by Anglo-Saxons, followed by the Norman invasion. With some reservation, Cohen suggests that William of Newburgh includes the green children's story in his portrayal of a predominantly unified and homogenous England. Cohen contrasts William of Newburgh's accounts of the green children with Geoffrey of Monmouth's The History of the Kings of Britain, a work that, according to William, contains abundant flowery and unbridled falsehoods, which is a pretty sick burn for medieval times. Geoffrey's history offers narratives of prior kings and realms with diverse ethnic identities, while William's depiction of England depicts a land where all groups are either assimilated or marginalized. Cohen argues that the green children represent a dual intrusion into William's version of a unified England. On one hand, they serve as a reminder of the cultural and ethnic distinctions between Normans and Anglo-Saxons, given the children's assertion of hailing from St. Martin's Land, which is named after Martin of Tours. The only other instance William mentions this saint is in reference to St. Martin's Abbey in Hastings, commemorating the Norman victory in 1066. However, the children also symbolize the earlier inhabitants of the British Isles, the Welsh and Irish and Scots, who had been forcibly anglicized. 
the green children resurface in another story that William had been unable to tell, one in which English peninsular dominance becomes an uncertain assumption rather than an established fact. The boy, in particular, who perishes rather than assimilating, embodies a neighboring world that cannot be annexed, an otherness that will perish to endure. Historians have put forth various explanations for the motivations of the two monastic authors. Rutch and Gordon have proposed that episodes like The Green Children serve as a commentary on the main historical narrative. Ooh, this is pretty dense, but we're pretty close to being done with this part of the explanation. <laughs> Medievalist Catherine Clark contends that while these tales have often been dismissed as peculiar folklore, diversions, or whimsicality, yeah. is a great word, they are not arbitrary insertions of fantasy, but rather hold a central role in the overarching narrative. Clark suggests that, often in response to the turmoil of the anarchy period, Newberg's contemplations <laughs> on the fantastical are threaded by a common theme. Ordinary experiences disrupted by something that eludes full comprehension or grasp through rationality. Similarly, Elizabeth Freeman, analyzing Ralph's account, observes that his stories, often perceived as light amusements, share a common underlying theme. This theme revolves around the menace posed by outsiders to the cohesion of the Christian community. Carl Watkins examines the literal and symbolic demonization of the girl in William's account. James Plumtree, great name, regards these narratives as 12th century historical digressions, functioning as a conduit for didactic theological interpretation, meaning moral, uh, meant to be taught, <laughs> essentially, yeah, like a moral yeah. lesson, right. In essence, these interpretations highlight how the green children and similar stories, although seemingly whimsical, offer deeper layers of meaning and service vehicles for conveying broader themes and messages within the historical context of the time. Woo! So to recap, a lot of people think that this is a moral story. This is something talking about... I mean, I, I really do think that it's probably something that most people don't think about anymore, especially in Europe, that it used to be... A lot of different groups of people and now everybody kind of feels like mm -hmm. one you know you don't think about well i'm from east anglia and they're from mercia and they're from wessex or like whatever the old uh kingdoms were or the different sort of racial breakdowns of the people there mm -hmm. even though to us they probably wouldn't seem as stark as some of the racial differences that we see today just with how sort of small the world has gotten with the ease of travel. Yeah. But I think it's an interesting theory to show like, look, there's somebody who's slightly different and we're trying to bring them into our world and make them Christian and make them speak English. And this one just chose to die instead of being baptized. And yeah, I, I, I love that a neighboring world that cannot be annexed an otherness that will mm -hmm. perish to endure that is the theme of from my cold dead hands right like i would rather die than be like you and that's powerful mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all right but we will talk publication and legacy after a quick break Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. 
So, the legacy of this seems to be influence on later media, stories, accounts, whatever. So we see Francis Godwin, the Bishop of Hereford, sharing a similar view to that of Robert Burton from 1621 uh, in his work of fiction, The Man in the Moon. But Robert Burton's account was uh, not only the authenticity of the tale, but also posited that the children had descended from the moon. So essentially science fiction versions of the story being written based off of something that another person believed to be true. Gotcha. We also see that there's, and we're going to go easy on this because we've hit you guys with an awful lot so far, but the tale resurfaced in the mid Victorian era when folklorist Thomas, uh, Cately, I'm going to say included it in the fairy mythology, marking its initial appearance in English. Uh, the English anarchist poet and critic Herbert Red, which we mentioned before, hailed the story of the Green Children in his work English Prose Style in 1928, which, again, we've already talked about. We've already talked about uh, the novel The Green Child released by the same author in 1935. Author John Macklin recounted a story in his 1965 book Strange Destinies about two green children who arrived in the Spanish village of Banjos. Love it. Which is probably like... Banjos, or it's supposed to be pronounced some different way, but yeah, I'm, I'm hearing uh, dueling banjos. I'm hearing that music. Yeah, I'm hearing that in my head too. In 1887, many aspects of that account strikingly resemble the narratives of the Woolpit children, such as the name of Ricardo de Cano instead of Richard de Con, <laughs> the mayor of the town which bears a strong resemblance to, you know, the position of authority of Richard. It is evident that Macklin's tale is a creation uh, influenced. We wouldn't want to say plagiarizing the story of the green children of Woolpit, especially considering that no historical record exists of a Spanish village of this name. The Green Children Tale was also the inspiration of J.H. Prine's 1976 poem, The Land of St. Martin. He never, well, actually, I don't know if J.H. is male or female. Prine never acknowledges this directly, however, merely alluding to it tangentially in his epigraph, a fairly free rendering. That's the title of the epigraph. Says critic, says critic N.H. Reeve of William of Newburgh's Latin text, the sun does not rise upon our countrymen. Our land is little cheered by its beams. We are contented with that twilight which among you precedes the sunrise or follows the sunset. Moreover, a certain luminous country is seen not far distant from ours and divided from it by a very considerable river. So, describing what the green children described. You know, yeah. it's not necessarily exactly the same thing, but it really sounds like it. <laughs> There's an Australian novelist and poet named Randolph Stowe who uses the green children in a 1980 novel titled the girl green as elder flower, which I don't love that title uh, in the narrative. The green girl serves as the inspiration for the title character who is portrayed as a fair haired girl with green eyes. The account of the green children captures the attention of the central character, Crispin Clare, as well as other characters drawn from the writings of William of Newburgh, 
Gervais of Tilbury, and other <laughs> Latin sources. Stowe integrates translations from these texts, and these characters possess histories marked by loss and displacement that resonate with Claire's own experience. So there's a lot of green children type stories. 1996, English poet Glenn Maxwell crafted a verse titled Wolf Pit based on the story of the green children. There's a play. Not to be confused with Ghislaine Maxwell. Ghislaine, yeah, different. Um, yeah, there's a play performed by the Cambridge University Amateur Dramatic Club at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe of that same year and has been staged more recently in New York City. Maxwell's adaptation sees the girl becoming an indentured servant under the Lord of the Manor until a stranger intervenes, purchasing her freedom and leading her to an undisclosed destination. Sounds creepy. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, this is has also, yeah, this has also been the foundation of several children's books from the 20th and 21st centuries. This one called Tom's Tale, The Green Children of Woolpit are some examples. Uh, there's a author and poet named Kevin Crossley Holland, who's used this theme on a couple occasions. In 1966, he had a book called The Green Children, remaining mostly faithful to that. Uh, and his 1994 adaptation offers the story from the perspective of the green girl specifically. So this guy had a long career. That might be a cool book. Yeah. That might be a fun one to check out. It's interesting to try to imagine the perspective of different characters. I thought that was kind of a cool thing that they started mm -hmm. doing a couple of years ago with like these popular books, like when they did, um, what was it? Twilight, but from Edward's perspective, mm -hmm. I don't know if they actually wrote that or it was just like a sample chapter that the author put out, but it's like from no idea. Bella's side. It's this awful like teen romance. There's a guy, everybody likes me, but I like this guy but he's a vampire and he's like, I just want to kill her so bad. <laughs> he's like, but I can't cause I'll expose all of us. Like I, I don't know if that's actually what it's like, but <laughs> it seems like it'd be kind of an interesting read. Mm -hmm. Anyway, notably fantasy and science fiction writers, John Crowley in 1981 and Terry Windling in 1995 have both written short stories for adult audiences inspired by the green children. So, final Dang. thoughts. There, there's clearly just tons and tons, and I skipped over quite a bit. I was trying to summarize as much as I could, but to sh I mean, it, it appears that since that initial English version of the story, when did we say that that came out? I guess it doesn't matter. I can't find it. In it's my a 1222, right? Well, they were saying the first time it came out in modern English, I think. Oh. Oh, the fairy mythology. But I don't think we have a date for that. Mid-Victorian is what it says. All right. So, yeah, seems like since then, I mean, kind of the whole 20th century, this was being used a ton. Just these, the story of mysterious kids from an unknown place with this slight physical divergence being this driving force behind a mystery just gets used over and over again. Well, in... Just because there's not this, you know, long historical account of humans with green skin. Now we know that, you know, they talked about it being the green sickness from what they ate and things like that. But there's no like historical accounts of like, oh, this family 
you know, from India all had green skin Mm -hmm. and this, you know, family from uh, Mongolia, like their lineage passed on green skin to like half the kids or whatever. But we do have accounts of uh, what is the uh, skin condition where people have like half black and half white and it's kind of like splotchy. It's really being pushed now, like with models and stuff. I, I can't think of the name I, of it. I know what you're talking about. Where, yeah, where there will be. But, there was there was an ad where I think it was a black model or African American model, whatever the preferred way of saying it is. But all around her mouth, the skin was very sort of Caucasian, white looking. Yeah. And at first, I was like, "Wait, is that what the makeup's supposed to do?" Like, I don't pay attention to makeup commercials because why would I? Yeah. Like, they're not directed at me. But I kind of looked right. and I was like, wait a minute, is that what it's supposed to do? And then I just realized like, oh no, they're just, they're just trying to advertise like this is for any skin tone. Even if you have sort of sure. a range of skin tones on your own body, like this is for you. But I do know what you're talking about because I have seen those commercials. Yeah. And, and I don't know what it's called. I should know. I mean, it's, it's being pushed a lot right now, but um, there's no accounts that I know of where they talk about you know, like, oh, this person looked like this. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that there's going to be something where they like pass it on to their children. If if this story's true and the girl survived and her skin, you know, lightened up with eating regular food or whatever. But it's it's odd that this is like really the only story I know of of green children and they don't describe them as having different features or anything like that or different abilities or anything. It's just skin tone, which kind of leads me Mm. to maybe the person that was talking about it being a racial thing was right. It's either that or gamma rays. So I, you know, it almost makes me lean more towards the alien thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're trying to hide their well oh, okay. with a twist because I I've read about this I'm I'm sure I've read some like really wonderful dollar store sci-fi novels before because I used to just love those they're I mean some of them are really actually very good and some of them are just so bad right. they're also yeah. really entertaining <laughs> but I've I've definitely read some where you know it's a couple hundred years in the future or a thousand years in the future, humanity has spread to a few different planets. And now, you know, there are racial differences in people from like sub-Saharan Africa and people from, you know, Northern Norway, like those two, Mm. like people growing up in those locations, evolving those locations are going to start to look different because they're adapting to a significantly different climate. And, uh, the idea is that, you know, there start to become new sort of racial differences based on what planet you're on. You know, the food's a little different. Mm. The sun's a little different. The whatever, the whole environment's mm. a little different. So you might, one group might start to have like bigger eyes or something like that because they have a dimmer star. Another might get mm. like bigger and stronger because they're on a planet with heavier gravity or one might start to right. change color because of the kind of, uh, plant life that grows there and the kind of food that they have access to. So it almost makes it seem like a time slip mm. that these kids came through from some future Earth civilization. Wow. 
I like it. That's 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 my far out like building on like bullshit on top of bullshit theory that I'm just coming up with now off the top of my head. Makes more sense than the one guy <laughs> that that their uh, beam got intercepted yeah. by an old English wizard. That's what I want to imagine. <laughs> He's like casting some spell, and these kids appear, and he's like, holy shit, it worked. (laughs) He's like, this isn't what I wanted. I wanted like a hot ham and Swiss, but two green kids, sure, I'll take it. Yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah, I like that theory. I mean, it would make sense too, because of what, you know, we don't know what's going on in our environment so much as, as we think we do, I think. And who knows? I mean, you know, they continue to, you know, try and spray the skies and reflect sunlight back and change the ozone and, and all this stuff. We're getting into a lot of shit that we don't know what the ultimate outcome will be. And it could be green people. Yeah. Well, and I'm still thinking of the vertical plane, which I still have sitting here with my flags where the entity sending these messages says it is far more common or more likely that the, encounters you're having or sightings that you're having that appear to be aliens are probably just humans from the future and it's some kind of time slip or accidental interaction yeah how about this one for you so they were an early example of aliens like we see with the black-eyed kids Mm -hmm. where they're like we are going to make these people or these aliens, whatever humanoids you want to call them, we're going to make them human so they can go on earth and, you know, scout for us or or do whatever. And then they're like, fuck, we can't do anything about this green skin. Keep rolling, send them down and see what happens. You know, it's like maybe they, they could change the, you know, the shape of their bodies, not, not the kids themselves, but through, you know, DNA and, and, stuff like that genetic manipulation they could make them look more human almost human but they maybe they can't if they don't have the green skin where they're at they wouldn't survive so they're like fuck we got to keep the green skin Uh send them down anyway and let's see what happens oh it's exactly what we thought they would you know make us be like them yeah (laughs) or yeah they just can't change the green skin given their own dietary stuff like oh no when we mix in human dna they just turn kind of green but if they're in a human environment they they'll go back to sort of a more typical skin tone i like that i actually like that a lot that's where i hoped you were going as soon as you started saying that it's like please tell me that it's like a hybridization program and they're like well they're a little green but let's just drop them in and see what happens (laughs) see if they accept them well Or, you know, it could be as wild as, you know, they were doing the uh, cattle mutilation, stealing, um, you know, uh, uh, what would you steal from a woman or from a cow to grow a baby in a womb? What was Merzulli talking about? I can't remember. No, it wouldn't be Well, he just, I don't know if he specified what materials it was, but. Yeah, I think he was saying that they were stealing, um. Gosh, you can tell we know nothing about female anatomy. <laughs> uh, basically, like stealing the wombs out of these cattle or whatever else they were taking it from back then. And for whatever reason, that that breed of cattle or goat or whatever turned the kids skin green. 
And now they know if they use milk cows, dairy cows from Iowa, that won't happen. Well, didn't they say that the green skin faded over time? Mm-hmm. I think it's more likely... Yeah. I mean, think about what our astronauts eat. Like on the space station. It's like paste. Yeah, if you believe in the space I mean, station. You can drink stuff like Soylent or... I mean, if you go into like a GNC or a, a supplement superstore... They'll, they can direct you to powders and things you can drink that are, you could survive on it. It may not be the best diet, for oh, you, sure. but you could probably survive right. on just some mix of that stuff. So yeah. that's probably what the Greys would be using. I mean, if they're traveling yeah. super long distances, they probably have some kind of, you know, just, it's what we need. We're just going to drink, we're Gel just going to have our Soylent stuff, and that's it. And if it causes you to become green... I mean, maybe maybe that's what makes them gray. Maybe they wouldn't be gray if it wasn't for that. Maybe they'd be some other color, and it turns humans green. And on a side note, I think that's where we're headed anyway, right? Every Everything you eat is going to be made in a lab, because we all know labs don't produce any carbon. So they'll get rid of the... And, and I'm not talking in five years, but you know, maybe 50 years, they're like, hey, this is the only food you can have. I think they could probably find some way to get like lab grown meat to cut out the carbon that's involved in producing it and farming and all that, as well as just to eliminate animal suffering. But mm. I also, I don't think that they would eliminate the variety of food because there's too much, as long as there's capitalism and a need to appeal to people, you're going to have to have some kind of choice and you're going to have to have, some kind of reason. I like what you said. To want to differentiate. You're going to have to like be able to say, I want my lab-grown steak this way, not mm -hmm. that way. You know what I mean? Well, or you could say, no, I prefer to, you know, eat real chicken eggs. Okay, that's fine. That's your choice. You can do that. It's going to knock your social credit score down 20 points, and you won't be able to charge your car on Saturdays. Hmm. But that's your choice. You go ahead. Maybe it was as simple as, you know, we get sunburns, right? And tans. Maybe these children were just so used to being in low light that when they came to the surface, their way of tanning, their skin turned green instead of like bronze or red or, you know, whatever, whatever we turn. I turned I turn brown, you turn red. <laughs> I turn red and then I shed my skin like a snake. Nice. Because I'm Irish. There you go. <laughs> there's a little native if you shook my family tree, there's a couple Native Americans that would pop out somewhere, but none of I get none <laughs> of that like beautiful skin tone. I have like nasty red Irish skin. It's better than green anyway, right? <laughs> well, that's a little uh little bigoted of you. <laughs> Hey, I'm just taking it from Kermit D. Frog, man. It ain't easy being green. <laughs> oh, my God. Or Kim was watching the, the Jim Carrey Grinch movie when the cab drives by, and he's like, oh, okay. You know, and then he, he's like, it's because I'm green, isn't it? It's terrible. Couldn't get away with a joke like that today. There's actually quite a few adult jokes that I didn't catch in that movie when I first saw it 23 years ago. Yeah, and I'll never watch it, so... It is what it is. I guess that about wraps it up. Do you have any other things you want to add? I think we 
definitely overcovered all the sources of all the information and hopefully yeah hopefully you guys liked our wrap up on that our final thoughts yeah yeah hopefully we did a good job of tying a, a bow on that and just showing like this is a this is an account that seems so sort of random and inconsequential that nobody can tell exactly why it was written yeah it's had a huge impact on popular media and stories like sort of in a modern contemporary base, mm-hmm. but historically it seems to have been represented as true. Mm-hmm. Like this is a true account of these kids who showed up. Here's what they were like. Here's one of them died. The other was married off. Just a weird thing that happened, a weird historical account. And it's, it's just so peculiar. I think that's what makes it such a good mystery. It's like, it seems folkloric, but it's not told in that kind of way. Right, right. Yep, it's presented as real. All right. So if you haven't done so already, or even if you have, and you'd like to help out some more, give us a like, give us a positive review, share all that good stuff. The socials are all going to be in the show notes. And if you have a story you want to share... Uh, like we had the, the girl last week that suggested that some young female mystery writers or ghost story writers or just conspiracy theorists or, you know, into the paranormal, write some stories or let us know what you want to hear at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash cryptique pi and you can check out crypticpodcaststore.com for some pretty cool t-shirts some mugs stickers uh you know pint glasses all that good stuff and mm-hmm. and we'll <laughs> talk to you soon we've got some good stuff coming up we've got spontaneous human combustion we've got cults we've got ufos and Christianity. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I'll, oh, and Tartaria, the mud floods, and the demonization of blimps is coming soon. So be sure to check those out. But that's all we've got for you tonight. Good evening, Crypt Keepers.